When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Slate Money is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slatemoney and using the promo code SLATEMONEY. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. I'm Ezra Klein, host of the new Vox podcast, The Weeds. Every week I'm joined by Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias for a podcast for people who follow politics because they care about and love policy. We talk about healthcare, about economics, about the future of work. We get very nerdy. We get very into the weeds. In a way, you won't hear anywhere else. So subscribe to The Weeds now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash Panoply and join us for a discussion about what's really important in politics. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Great Debate edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. This episode came together on Twitter as all the best episodes do. We all four of us, yes, I said four, found ourselves in a Twitter canoe a few weeks ago and decided that this episode was going to happen. So this, think of this as the episode that social media began. Mm. Mm. 
Um, I am, as you know, Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hello, everyone. Hello, Kathy. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, everyone. And, and this is the exciting bit, the one and only Nando Vila. Nando, welcome. How are you? Who are you, Nando? Oh, I work at Fusion like yourself. We are colleagues. Yes. We, we have known each other for many years, since mm-hmm. like before even Fusion days. Yeah. And um, Nando is a broadcaster of some description. He does all manner of fabulous things on television. Um, but not only does he do fabulous things on television, every so often he writes unbelievably stupid things on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to come to that in a minute. We are also (laughs) going to talk about Neil Kashkari, the newly appointed president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Um, You probably know who that is if you live in California, or it maybe rings a bell, but we'll explain why it might ring a bell. Uh, We'll also talk about the alarming statistic about white Americans. And, well, anyway, let's just get into this debate. Jordan, what was Nando's horrible, stupid thing that he wrote? So this, by the way, is a debate. I'm not sure how we're going to structure it. We haven't really talked about this. But basically it's... Oxford style. It's Jordan and (laughs) and me versus Nando and Kathy. Because, Kathy, you agree with Nando on this. Absolutely. Okay, Okay. so so Nando, what was the... Okay, Jordan, what was the headline of Nando's piece? The headline that got my attention was why the government should erase all current student loan debt. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll I'll, I'll read the the lead for everyone's benefit, which is student loans suck big time, so wouldn't it be cool if if we just got rid of them? Is that even possible? Well, yeah, it is possible. It's just a matter of mustering the political will. Mm. Lol. It turns out it could even mean a huge boost to the economy. Mm. I tweeted this story out, and I just had a, just a line, this has lots and lots and lots of problems. Um, <laughs> and that is where our Twitter canoe began and thus begat this episode. So, Nando, tell us why you think we should get rid of all student loan debt. Um, well, are you serious? Well, first, a, a disclaimer. I mean, I... I, I... I realize that that was like a shameless pander to uh, our supposed target audience, uh, mostly the millennials, the snake people, riddled with student debt. Uh, You know, it it started off. I am not an expert uh, on the economy or anything like that, Um, but I have a bunch of friends who have a bunch of student debt, and they always complain about it. And I was like, well, what what would happen if I just, you know, if we just got rid of it? And then I started asking around, uh, and I was surprised to see that there was actually people out there who believe that. So I went with it. So, I mean, how much student debt are we talking about? $1.3 trillion. And how quickly are we going to get rid of it? Well, we could just, you know, we can get rid of it as fast as we want. But the That would most... be a $1.3 trillion overnight windfall for everyone who went to college, which is obviously the neediest people in America. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So here's, you know, we're talking about this, which is, it's kind of over the top, but this is actually a live debate because there are smaller versions of this that get, that get talked about all the time. Uh, Hillary Clinton wants to, quote, refinance all student debt. For well, refinance doesn't reduce or write off any debt. It doesn't write off principal, but it does reduce what people with student debt will owe over time. No, I, so okay, so yeah. that, is a, that is a moderated version. So the bigger question here is how much do we want to give to people who have student debt? Are they the, like our first priority? And that's, that's sort of my issue is if you're going to spend lots and lots, like, Student debtors are people like Felix said who have gone to college, who are by and large actually fairly wealthy, who 
Actually, if you pull them, are by and large happy with their finances. Pew looked at this. About 70% of student debtors say they are happy with their personal finances. And so you're basically just giving them this windfall. Whereas if you took $1.3 trillion over 10 years, right? That's more than we're planning to spend on the Obamacare subsidies. Mm -hmm. That's more than we're planning to spend on uh, child tax credit and earned income tax credit combined, which help middle-income and low-income families. Um, There are so many priorities that should come before people who went to college. Kathy disagrees, don't you, Kathy? Well, yeah, I think, I, first of all, I don't think we just want, I, I, I'm going to ratchet up just a second. Mm. Um, I don't think we just want to forgive student debt. We also want to make college free going forward. And it's not because they're the neediest people. It's because we as a society want to invest in our chi- uh, children's futures. And it it means that we but as does, a society... how does writing off student debt invest in our children's futures? I understand the making college free thing, but let's not change the well, subject. Let's, let's go back to the where, student who, debt. Like, let's think about who owes student debt right now. Who's really under the weight of student debt? Um, actually, in the last five years, I think, um, you just said 70% of... Uh, Tell, tell yeah, us 70, 75% of the increase in the default rate of student loans has been uh, driven by uh, for-profit colleges. Um, the, the people who are struggling with student debt, the people that are struggling to repay it, are mostly poor and marginalized students, uh, A lot, of, often from all-black colleges, according to new data that was just published in the New York Times. So the people that it would help the most are poor and marginalized. Wait, wait, um, hang on a second. Wait, wait, so, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me just disagree with that. Sure. Because the default rates, I understand, are often people who never graduated, they're people who went to for-profit colleges, and yes, those people would be helped if their student loans were wiped out. But those aren't the people who it would help the most. The people who it would help the most are the people who've borrowed the most. And the people who've borrowed the most are the people who went to medical school, the people who went to law school, the people who are making massive, great big incomes and have $150,000 worth of student debt. Exactly. And, you know, defaulters have very, very low balances. I mean, this has been found. People who default on debts, it's not because they have so much debt that they can't handle it. It's that a lot of the time that it's that repaying it is such a complicated process that no one ever really counsels them on it. They don't, re- they don't know how to get into an income-based program that will keep the debt manageable. There are all sorts of things that can be done before just that would be probably be more helpful to them than forgiving everybody's debt. If you forgive everybody's debt, it's going to go, there's a disproportionate benefit that's going to go to graduate students, who, by the way, are th- taking out 30% of all student loans. We're talking about MBAs, doctors, lawyers, people like that. So it's not an efficient way to forgiving or refinancing, in my opinion, is not an efficient way to deal with those low-income borrowers who went to a for-profit school. Can we make a compromise where we forgive uh, college debt, not graduate school debt, and we make college free? I mean, the thing is that college is a ticket to the middle class. And what what we did in the last 50 years is we, we went from giving that ticket to people as they were growing up after post-World War II, where college was affordable, to now we're saying, no, you have to pay your own ticket. And often it doesn't work and it, it saddles people with lots of debt. They often don't graduate. Um, and well, it, it really sets them back. if you don't graduate, it's not the ticket to the middle class. That's and true. making it free is not going to actually help you that much. And the for-profit colleges, if they just wound up getting you know grants from the government instead of loans from the government, they would be fine. You know, I mean, they would say, great, this is even better. We don't need to have all of this negative publicity about student loans around on there. I absolutely agree that we should talk about why everyone has to go to college. 
Uh, that's an important discussion. But right now, what we cannot do is say, oh, it's, it's a fact that everyone should go to college, but we're not going to let poor people do it. That's not cool. And this is what we are essentially doing. And by the way, there's other things that are happening to people with student debt. I mean, you when you read about people uh, not buying houses, not investing in sort of adult things, oftentimes the student debt load is, is isn't, isn't that one a of the feature, reasons. not a bag? I feel like if like if the fewer people buying houses and well, wasting yes. money in real estate, the better off well, we the are. Point we is had that a whole the point is that they well, can't they can move on. <laughs> they, they don't get married. I mean, there's 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 all sorts of things. They don't have children. They, I mean, and Start I'm not, business. I, I, I'm not I, saying any of those things are particularly important for the, as a society. <laughs> but the point Kathy, is, that are people, you saying that we should get married more and have more children? God no. But I'm just saying people are are feeling like they can't move on. With their adult life. So the argument against it is that you, you think that you can use that money for other things. Yeah, I mean, like, well, what, what we, we, have we, a world of, we have a world of limited resources. I, If we could, I don't know, d- again, double the earned income tax credit, that'd be great. If we could basically give the money to poor people, it just... Yeah, hand, I think, hand it to them. Just yeah, hand, I think, literally yeah, cash to poor people. Be Take a trillion dollars and <laughs> give it in cash to everyone below the poverty line. That would have a much greater positive effect on America, on health outcomes and on all manner of yeah. stuff than writing off a trillion dollars of student debt to a bunch of people who are basically upper middle class. Why don't we just do both? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's just, I would, you know, if, if we have unlimited number of... Ta- I mean, it's funny saying this because I think it's gotten to the point where liberals are sort of more bound by math when it comes to talking about the policies they, they can propose. Whereas right now you have a lot of Republicans, and you mentioned this on your, in your piece, you have a lot of Republicans getting up on debate stages right now saying, I want a $3.4 trillion tax cut. I want a $7 trillion mm-hmm. tax cut. So They're competing I mean, for it. Yeah, competing for it. So there is this like weird kind of hallucinatory thing going on on the right where there's just like no sense of limitation on what we can do or cut. But I think it's that... It's so much more fun that way. It is more fun that way. They but do it all the time. There, Whenever they're in power, they yeah, do it all the time. There, there's some obligation, I think, on the left to say, okay, there there's we have to pay some attention to reality, which is actually one of the reasons why I don't think free college is such a bad idea, or not necessarily free college. Well, such a Rubenite, well, honestly, well, like well, reality-based <laughs> fiscal policy. Well, so here's the thing: the thing I, I've been so I I, I like I've been t- writing about how we could make college free potentially. I think for like three years now. I, I you know I, I I started doing it in 2012, and the point I always come back to is w- with what we spend right now. On public on subsidizing higher education with the federal government, we might not be able to make college totally free. It's unclear. The numbers are a little fuzzy, but we could get like a good chunk of the way there. I mean, I'm actually I'm almost free market here. Like, what I want to see is us yeah. stop giving money to for profit colleges and just fund the shit out of state schools. Well, that's that would be what you do. And yeah. I don't need every college to be free, but I need every college to compete with those free state schools. That, that's, that's, and that's going to help yeah. a, a, just and that, a lot. And that is the Bernie Sanders policy, yeah. and it's a perfectly sensible policy. I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, for all that Nando's ideas are completely insane. Like, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, is, by, com- by, by contrast, is perfectly sensible. <laughs> but, so the, but I do think it's, there's this interesting divide, because the left is like, let's make college free or a lot cheaper. It's like, yes, that, that's good going forward. And then they say, oh, but we should also spend a lot of money reducing the debts of people who already took out those loans, where it's not clear what the economic benefit of that is, especially since we don't know if, if you know, a slight student loan write down is, is actually going to spur people to buy a lot more real estate or more cars or whatever. It's, it's not clear what that would be. I don't want them to do that. And by the way, but you just, don't just want for them to the record, that's not fair. Just for the record, the tax implications of written off debt are kind of gnarly. Yeah. And, you know, you pay off your student loans slowly over decades. If you get a big one off 
write down, you have to pay income tax on all of that. So it's not actually necessarily good for you yeah. f- on, in terms of your cash flow. I, I mean, obviously, if we're doing whatever we wish, we can wish away the tax implications yeah. too. Come on. That that actually, I, of course. That, 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 I, we're Santa Claus here, people. We are Santa I just, I, wait, there's one other thing, though. I, I just want to point out, there are forgiveness programs right now where you can have your, your debt wished away, you know, specifically for public service workers. If you're a teacher, a public school teacher, you can get your debt forgiven in 10 years under the public service loan forgiveness program. If you're a nurse at a public hospital or a not-for-profit hospital, you can get your debt forgiven. Um, if you're a college professor, you can get your debt forgiven. I just want to go back to this graduate school versus college thing. Okay. College, I, I just wanted you guys to agree with me. I have two stupid points. College is a requirement nowadays for a good job. Graduate school is an investment in an even better job. So I really think, like, yes, you're right to say that we don't want to pay off people's law school uh, loans, but college loans, that is, I mean, we, basically everyone was told you have to go to college. The rich people's parents paid for it. Other people didn't have parents to pay for it. I think I would, I, I think there is something to that. Yes. Um, that said, there are still, I think, more effective ways you could help people who went to college and didn't necessarily get a great return out of it than just a mass write down of their debts. And and I will point to my, you know, fusion.net interactive which we talked about mm. over a year ago, yeah. which pointed out is called should you take the plunge, should you go to college? And the the main takeaway from that is that the real cost of college is not the tuition price. It's not how how much you pay in fees. The real cost of college is the opportunity cost. It's how much money you would otherwise be making if you were out in the workforce. I was talking to a Swiss friend of mine. He told me that only 20% of, of children, Swiss, Swiss children actually go to college and, and the yes, rest of them just Swiss, get jobs. And yeah, and, and yet and Switzerland like, seems to be doing okay. Yeah, and then they like buy houses when they're 25 because they've earned a lot of money. But that's not what we've told like an entire you know generation of people for it's not decades. Our system. You know, it's not we've, our system. We've, we've told them that you, you know, in order to be successful, you have to go to college. So then, you know, all these poor, dumb 18-year-olds. I mean, how many 18-year-olds do you hang around, Felix, these days? <laughs> They're pretty dumb. <laughs> he can barely hate. How, I mean, he can barely was, stand hanging out with a twenty-nine-year-old, yeah, much less yeah. an eighteen-year-old. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, next week on Slate Money, we're going to get a panel of teens. And yeah. we're gonna, so oh wait, us, please, can we? Can we? Play, <laughs> I would be so entertained by this. Can we, we just bring on Kathy's kid? Oh my God, my my kids would love coming. Um, Socialist. If you want to hear about socialism. Invite my son. <laughs> I, I need to. I need to segue somehow into telling everyone to buy a mattress. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> let's take. Let's take a nap. It's the best and... place to store your money. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you want to store your money under a high quality mattress, then the high quality mattress that you should store your money under is Casper. Casper, Casper. <laughs> the friendly ghost. Casper is. An online retailer, you can basically only get these things online, but they will send them to you for free. It's the cheapest, best mattress you can get. You, This is, if you really want to game the system, you can sleep on this mattress for 100 days, send it back, and then pay nothing. And they'll take it back, they'll box it up, they'll do everything for you. You can even get $50 off if you use the promo code slate money. So there's no reason not to have an awesome mattress because these mattresses are just... So much better and so much cheaper than any other mattress. So casper.com slash slate money. Enter the promo code sleep money, get fifty dollars off and sleep like a baby. Do babies sleep well? 
They do. Uh, do they, they sleep they, anywhere? I don't think that. No, I don't think they do. That's the thing. They, they, they sleep like two hours. Does not have children. Need, yeah, obviously. Yeah. I, I don't. I think that's like the joke. Maybe I. I. I'm almost convinced that phrase had to start as a joke. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, sleep like baby, yeah, yeah. and then people mis- misinterpreted. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move on to a fun, wonky subject, which is the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, the hottest Federal Reserve. It, it's. It is. I mean, if you're a wonk, it kind of is the hottest Federal Reserve Bank. There are a dozen of these things, like for reasons which I think maybe go back to Alexander Hamilton or something. I don't really understand it. The United States does not have a central bank. It has 12 central banks. And one of them is in Minneapolis. And again, for reasons which I don't really understand why, the Minneapolis Fed has historically been the kind of intellectual wonk out fed and the head of the minneapolis fed is this uh, well among other things the best named um fed president in the world absolutely nariana kochalakota um (laughs) come on nando you can say that nariana kochalakota yeah see like nando's a good broadcaster he can nail it nariana (laughs) kochalakota is everybody's favorite fed president frankly I think so. Charles Evans, like, he's pretty... Charles Evans coming in hot. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Is it, be- is it because of his name? Like, why? It's because he's awesome. Well, so, no, he's, no, do here, here's, So here's why. Um, yeah. He's The left loves him right now because he started off as, like, an inflation hawk. And then he had sort of a Paul mm. on the road to Damascus moment where he's like, oh, God, the economy is, like, in trouble. And so he's become the dude who doesn't just want to keep inflation, you know, he doesn't want to just keep rates low. He wants to try all sorts of unconventional things to get inflation a little bit higher. He, he is the negative dot. Yeah. So every at the, end of, <laughs> yes. at the end of the Open Market Committee, like, when you see the minutes, um, there's, a, there's what's known as a dot plot showing where do all of the Fed members think that rates are going to be in a year's time. Ah. And everyone's like, 2%, 3%, 4%, and Nariana's like, minus 0.5. He's the negative dot. He's the crazy guy. But yeah, and one of the awesome things about him is that he used to be very hawkish. He used to be like the guy who you know, would want to keep rates high and he's completely changed his tune. When the facts change, he changes his mind. He's very intellectually honest. And he writes like amazing papers about how money is just memory and that kind of thing. Like he does really weird things. He he geeks out about weird like Bitcoiny stuff. Yes. And, I know. mean like monetary policy in general I think attracts the econ nerds who dabbled in psychedelics in college. Like that's <laughs> just like the personality profile. And he's definitely like head guru right now in the Federal Reserve system. And so it's kind of sad that he's leaving, but we should talk about who his replacement is going to be. So is his that... his replacement as I say, if you um live in California, you know who Neil Kashkari is because he was the guy who Jerry Brown beat in the last gubernatorial election. He was the Republican. You remember that random kid who just kind of completely failed as a politician? That was Neil Kashkari. (laughs) Um, But for those of us who lived through the financial crisis, we remember Neil Kashkari much better as the guy who Hank Paulson picked out of obscurity in Goldman Sachs. He was some very obscure person at Goldman who no one had ever heard of and put in charge of the entire top bailout program and he was about 12 <laughs> <laughs> he does look young and he's very good looking and man. F- he's I was going to say really kind of he is hot. also the, the I, I believe the very first fed president to have been featured in people's sexiest man alive wait was Ooh. he really he, he was really also was. he was also from in the hbo movie the andrew ross sorkin book 
Oh, he, he, was actually, old, yeah. he, he was actually in Too Big to Fail. Like yeah. he played. He well, played, so. no, uh, some guy played him. Oh, okay. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was, just, I could actually see them just being like, and Neil Kashkari as himself, himself. because <laughs> he's that hot, looking so, like but, all concerned about the economy. Is it? Is it? Uh, isn't it unusual to have someone who wanted to be a politician become a Fed person? Aren't Fed people supposed to be like nerdy, non-political people? I think so. Yeah, I mean, well, for a while they were drawn from academia, and so one of the one of the interesting comments about this is he's kind of a throwback because he was a banker. I mean, yeah, is, that's that's the uh, that yeah. that would seem like a strange. Yeah, well, he wasn't a banker, banker. He was a Goldman. Yeah, and. Interestingly, now he's not going to be voting on the FOMC until 2017. Until 2017, but in 2017, not only is Neil Kashkari going to be voting on the FOMC, FOMC but being the Federal Open Market Committee, which sets interest rates. Right. Five or six other members of the FOMC are also going to be ex-Goldman. Oh wow! The the gold Goldman Sachs is just like. Do you think they'll actually just walk in with squid. wires coming from like directly from <laughs> well, the head of Goldman, whoever so, that is at the time? So he's the, the question which I have about Neil Kashkari is he went to Goldman Sachs, and there's lots of people who went to Goldman Sachs, had relatively junior positions there, left Goldman Sachs, and then everyone's like, ooh, he's ex-Goldman. Being ex-Goldman is a bit like being ex-Google in Silicon Valley. People think that just because you worked at a place, that must make you a, a, a genius. But what has he actually achieved ever in his career? He went to PIMCO, for instance, after he left um, Treasury, and he dis- and he was given the job of starting up PIMCO's equities arm, basically. The PIMCO is this huge bond investor, and PIMCO decided that the, the growth in the future was that they should be invested in stocks as well as bonds. And what happened is it failed miserably. Well, So basically, I should have become the Minneapolis Fed guy. I mean, like, why Why him? Well, so this is... Like, who, who, who is... Anybody in this you, room were might you be in HBO? <laughs> That's, so were you in see People's Sexiest Men Alive? <laughs> so this actually... Um, I think this kind of comes back to... Uh, your your point about why it is we even have this weird system with all these different banks, you know, it developed uh, you know, when we, they were creating the Federal Reserve. There was a lot of skepticism uh, about having one big national, you know, bank setting all monetary policy among financiers. And so it was kind of a compromise that they were going to have the regional banks as well. And then who would be nominated as president? Well, they would have the there would be, you know, a board basically made up of bankers who would then be able to nominate a Fed president. And not just bankers, though. I think a couple of them were supposed to represent the public yeah, interest. But, yes, but still. Theoretically. So you essentially have financiers electing Fed presidents. So I think you know the answer for Neil Kashkari is probably just like well-liked in this world. Like that, yeah. that, that's, that, I'm guessing that's a big part of it. He's kind of yeah, bouncing around. Bankers like him. Yeah. And then, yeah, he, he went to Wharton. Yeah. He has, he's very clubbable. He's good looking. He is he's clubbable. Friendly. That's, I think, well, like the... What, what does that sound like it's easy to hit him? What is <laughs> clubbable? <laughs> wait, so also, I, wait, there's one thing I have to mention about his... Just to give you a sense of this guy's personality. Um, when he was running for governor of California, he pulled this stunt where in order to like highlight poverty in in the state, he just like went to Fresno with like $40 in his pocket and spent a week oh, yes. bit trying to find a job and just filming himself being homeless. And just like, he just, he he actually, he pulled the stunt. It was just like, but you're watching a video and he keeps asking people for work and they're like, that's not really how you find a job here. Like, everyone's <laughs> yeah. just like very puzzled that like there's this random guy walking around asking if they're hiring. Um, it was, it's very, he was really strange. But what I wanted to ask is, I, I wasn't really cognizant of kind of, the, the details of TARP when it was happening. I just like, that's not where my focus was in life at that point. What 
What was like the review of his performance? Like, was he any good at managing this program? It's impossible to tell. Okay. To be honest, I think the the big decisions about TARP were made, you know, a couple of notches higher up on the org chart than the org Kashkari. Okay. You know, they were, when when Hank Paulson decided he was going to force a bunch of banks to take an equity injection, you know, the big bailout, which was in the movie and everything, that was not Neil Kashkari's decision. Um, so I don't know. And and then the the nitty gritty of running it and making sure that the banks signed the right right pieces of paper and promised not to pay their CEOs too much and that kind of stuff that was done by permanent civil servants that wasn't done by political so people below him so basically he didn't do anything (laughs) what did he do so so that's it's a really good question and I don't know I mean I haven't spoken to people who who worked closely with him during those years but it's a good question and I. I kind of get the feeling that he's done a great job of moving from important job to important job and that he's reached that kind of stratosphere where when you fail at one job, you just I was about get, to say, ascend did, to the next one. Does he just fail up? Is he, he just, like, just fail up? He kind of, with with, with the like, homeless thing in Fresno, it, it, he kind of re- makes me think like the Shia LaBeouf of, like, <laughs> of finance. You know? He's just like a performance artist. Well, he's a sexy man for the sexiest But, but the, the one thing I can guarantee <laughs> you, you is yeah. that after he's done a turn or two... As, as Minneapolis Fed president, he will be able to make as many millions of dollars as he likes in any number of different private sector jobs. The guy, I can't, I've kind of lost count already of how many turns through the revolving door that he's done, and I'm sure there's at least two or three more in his well, future. Well, that's good, because he literally spent half his net worth on his gubernatorial run, so he needs to make <laughs> that back. Okay. That's Neil Kashkari. We, I have to tell you also about SAP Hunter. That's our other one of our other sponsors this week. SAP HANA is this software which helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future, which is... Wow, that sounds like a, a helpful which service. Is, which is something which Neil Kashkari could probably make use of at the yeah. Fed. So run SAP, run simple, visit sap.com slash reimagine. A company that predicts more. the future. Then you can they use data, big data. Wow. It's good for you. Cool. Okay, Kathy. Yes. Are you a middle aged white woman? Whoa. Um you know <laughs> that's, Felix, that's such an impolite question, man. <laughs> Wait, I have, I'm out like I am swinging. A, Whoa. <laughs> an aspiring middle aged white woman. According to uh the new uh Ann Case and Angus Deaton uh study, I'm not quite middle aged yet. Forty five to fifty four. Hmm. Uh, but it turns out that if I were, then I'd be at uh increased risk of dying. Yeah. It's sad, sad to say. Compared to several years ago. Yeah, so it's weird. Um, you know, basically the study came out, it said that white people in the United States are, uh, who are between the ages of 45 and 54, middle-aged, their death rates are going up instead of down. And, and everybody, everybody else, else is going is down. Yeah. Right. Not only not only are other sort of uh, ethnicities, uh, categories going down, but also in other countries, like white white people their risks of dying are going down. So it's just weird. There's this weird trend just for middle-aged white people. And actually, by the way, uh, if you break it down by women versus men, it's actually worse for women. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, there's been... So a bunch of people have started digging into the data and they realized that, you know, uh, Case and Deaton might have... Uh, you know, they might have dropped the ball a little bit in terms of um, gender. And they see that women are actually getting worse faster than men. Yeah, so it's inter- uh, we actually ran an article on Slate by a Columbia professor named Andrew Gelman. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. so Gelman, he, he's 
He's a stats guy, among other things. Yep. And so he really broke down the data carefully. And what he found was, you know, it first off, part of the effect is, I, I think you might want to talk more about this, is actually sort of a statistical anomaly. Um, and it's kind of an interesting lesson in how you can use and misuse data. I'm not going to explain that super well, so I'll leave that to Kathy if she wants to. However, the more the bigger picture issue is that Whereas middle-aged white men saw their death rates kind of rise in the early 2000s, they then kind of went back down a bit. Women, they've just kept going up. And it's actually not just middle-aged white women. He finds it was also uh, white women in their late 30s as well. So... There's something wrong with white women in this country, and we don't know what. Uh, or, or do we? I don't, I, I'm really hesitant to make any conclusions, even though the New York Times op-ed page was full of them. So, so. Well, it's not just one thing. I think it's not that yeah. we, we have no idea what's going on. It's that it's actually a combination of different factors, including smoking trends. Um, and by the way, this is... Uh, but another white way women can, are not smoking more than they no, used to. No, but it's actually like poorer, poorer people that are much more at risk as well. So if, if you can yeah. dig it down a little bit more. Non-college um, educated. Non-college educated, uh, poorer white women. Yeah, they do smoke more. They than smoke, they used to. Um, that's a really important question. I don't know, actually. But because they the, this is the point. I mean, we, we all know, and this has been true for, forever, that poor people have worse health outcomes than rich people and if the, all that was you know that the case and Deaton was saying everyone would yawn and say yeah well so what else is new the question isn't why are poor people less healthy than rich people there's a million reasons for that the question is why are they getting worse when everyone else is getting better well the, the most obvious answer is heroin and and, and painkiller addictions a lot of the deaths are by poisons Poisoning, like which is basically a, a code for overdose and suicide. A lot of a lot of them are suicide, and a lot of the and a lot of them are somewhere in between, which speaks to some sort of I don't know some sort of fraying of the social fabric or something. I mean, uh, apparently in, in absolute terms, uh, since two thousand, it's it's five hundred thousand people died. More people died. How did the death rate continue to drop? So because of the increase in the death rate, there's been five hundred thousand more deaths. And if you look at it, it's like suicide, chronic liver disease, poisoning, cirrhosis. This is attached to addiction to either alcohol or other kinds of drugs. And it's also, it's I the way I see it is that it's a function of entrenched long-term poverty. That, yeah, poor, poor people have worse outcomes, but there's normally a fair amount of churn. That while people become poor, then they get a job and they're not poor anymore. And that... If you're poor for six months or a year, that's bad. But if you're poor for like six years or 10 years, that's really bad. And what I fear is that class mobility in the United States is lower than it's ever been, that poor people stay poor for longer than they ever have. And especially since the Great Recession, you know, 2008, 2009, plunged a lot of people into long-term unemployment, which they've never come out of, and they've been poor basically since then. You know, so there's, I, I, I kind of want to step in there because there, there's been some sociological demographic research um, on this specific question, do people stay poor for longer than they used to? Uh, a guy named Mark Rank's done a lot of it. And the, the numbers aren't that dramatic. Uh, poverty doesn't necessarily last, that isn't that much more grinding, doesn't last that much longer than it did 20 years ago, at least according to his findings. But there is, I think, this bigger question of, you know, is white America kind of fraying, like you said, Nando? And that's it's sort of the, the Charles Murray thing. I hate to give Charles Murray uh, credit. You may know him from such hits as The Bell Curve. But, yeah. um, but he also... Early this, 90s classic. Yeah, but, uh, but um, he also wrote this book a few years ago called Coming Apart that was basically 
you know, it was identifying these sorts of problems in white America, saying the social fabric had sort of uh, had frayed. And, you know, it's hard to diagnose exactly why that's happening. Is it just economic? Is it the fact that we've stopped getting married? Is it a combination of all of it? Is it the influence of drugs? But there is it student loan? It might it, be. I don't. It's the, I, it's well, one the thing I'm hopelessness that it is comes. Not. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I should. Yeah, it, like, we should just. Well, access just, to access yeah. to education seems like uh, one of the big problems. It's important to note. I mean, the statistics are that like the mortality rate for like. W- Middle class white people is still, still better lower than blacks and Hispanics. for blacks yeah. and Hispanics. So it's it's not a question of so like poor whites are still doing better than poor blacks. Yeah. So that, but the so, point is that poor blacks are improving their mortality rate, whereas poor whites are not. Yeah. Right. whites are whites are the only people in America are basically the only ones who are right. So I think the interesting question is comparing it to Europe. Like you, Felix, you're European, you know. I why, so why are you, Nando? Yeah. Why are white people there not dying? I mean, is it, is it why, why is there less hopelessness and despair in Europe? Because I mean, Europe... there's because there's less poverty. You know yeah. this as well as I do. That we have this thing in Europe called the social safety yeah. net. That the the kind of really grinding, horrible, can't feed yourself poverty that you see in America you just does not see. exist yeah. in Europe. Also, I think when you get to like fifty five here, and if you haven't saved properly or don't have a, and you're staring at an old age of you know absolute destitute poverty and despair like that's got to suck well, i don't think i i don't know if it's it, I, again this stays like poorer but i don't think it's all about just destitute poverty it's it's about lower income like it, they're trying to stronger with lower income americans but it's not simply about that it's about kind of if, if that would actually almost be less interesting and also i think it's i mean you know here i'm gonna start being all even more european but what has happened over this time period is increasing inequality, sharply increasing inequality. And I know this sounds um, weird in a way, but I think it is true to say that being poor is worse, you know, when there's high inequality, even keeping the level of poverty constant. If you're poor and everyone around you is also poor or maybe not, you know, or maybe just okay, then that's better if you're than if you're poor and then there's a huge upper class of people. Well, you feel part of the community at well. least, you know, and I, I think, you know, loneliness plays into a huge part of why people kill themselves, uh, you know. I also uh, think that, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the effect of just how much heroin there is and how many painkillers there are and how that actually does sort of in- increase sort of isolation among people in a community, right? The heroin, I think, has gotten seven times stronger in the last decade, and the price hasn't gone up. Um, and so, even like, if you're, I, I'm an old, I remember when heroin was just something you could just you know, <laughs> uh, do a couple yeah. lines. Well, the point is that if, if, if there's heroin lines. epidemics all over the place, even if you're not yourself, so, snorting to heroin, heroin is such a middle class thing. To uh, do. Totally, like, the, the, the lower class is always inject, but the middle class is snort. So yeah, my, my yeah, point you know, being, uh, can you guys hear me? Show. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, <laughs> my yeah, point being that even if you're not addicted to heroin, like if if the neighborhood you live in has that kind of epidemic going on. It's just, a, it's a shitty place to live. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a place where you're more likely to be drinking alcohol. You know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, we're in a serious crime, uh, not crime wave, drug no. spike wave. And, and part of that, it's worth noting, it, heroin's not just affecting poor communities, quote unquote. It's affecting a lot of working class white communities. And I also heard Staten it's the Island. drug du jour amongst the Miami college kids these days. That's horrifying. That's like, like what that is just... Talk about dumb eighteen-year-olds. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so, so, so seeing as how we have a very rare and special occasion in the um, in in the Slate Money off Studios right now, which is that we have someone from Miami, yeah, in the podcast. 
we're going to just end this segment by asking Nando, what is flaca? Flaca. Oh, that's like the new drug. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I don't know exactly what it's made of, but it's like the new thing that's taken over. It's, it's mostly in um, the sort of uh, poor towns in central and northern Florida. It's just taking over. Um, it's just this awful sounding thing. I, I, I wish I knew. What is it supposed to do? Is it like do? I've pot never it. or is it like cocaine? What? I mean, it's like, it's not like pot or cocaine. It's like, I think it's made from the resin of cocaine. I mean, it's it's a drug that, that also has been existing now in Argentina for a few years. They call it something else. Um, and, it sounds like something if you really broke and you oh, need yeah. to get high, like this yeah. is where you... Yeah. It is. Look it up on the internet. Look, look it up on the internet. It, Fusion it, has done a few articles on it. We, we also have... Zach Dynasty, the um, the amazing producer of yeah. Slate Money, has actually done that thing called Google <laughs> and looked up Flaca, which is apparently Zach. Tell us what it is. Flaca from a quick Google search sounds like an amphetamine uh, that is similar to ecstasy, though it looks like it's uh, a bit more dangerous. So I would certainly uh, be careful and possibly avoid completely. One more sponsor this week. We have Mile IQ for people in Florida and other Americans who drive everywhere. What they often don't realize is the sheer amount of money that you can make just by filing for like the business trips that you drive around. It's, you know, $500 a month sometimes. You can just get bing. All you need to do is install this app on your phone and then you get checks, basically. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that, but also, almost. Ah, you don't need fun. to log the trips. It's bing bong, bing bong. That's a technical term, by the way. But you, the, your <laughs> phone will tell you, um, it will show you all of the trips that you've taken in your car. And you swipe left if it's a personal trip, swipe right if it's a business trip. It'll log them all up. You send it all in. There's a standard IRS rate, which you get repaid at. And you make lots. It's the most amazing money-making app. It has like a five-star rating in the app store. It's like, a, it's like Tinder for business trips. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it's like that guy that used to do the infomercials with the money suit. It's, it's the question marks. So you know what I'm talking about. If right? you yes. drive yeah. at all, <laughs> three one nine nine six. That's all you need to remember. That's the number that you text Slate Money to for your free trial of Mile Like You. Slate Money to three one nine nine six. Kathy, yes. What's your number? Seventy million. Whoa. That's a lot. Big. Wait, okay, what's your, what's, what, why? What is it? Tell us more. <laughs> I'm not telling you. No, 70 million is the number of Americans that have a criminal record. Whoa. Yeah, there's a, it's Of which a, Felix is one. <laughs> um, I'm not, not an American. He's not American. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it, the reason it, it's coming up is because there's a new campaign called Ban the Box, uh, which is already uh, a law in 19 states, but not everywhere, that makes it um, illegal for you to, um, like, basically throw away someone's application for a job just based on the fact that they have a criminal record. Mm. Um, there's just so many, 70 million. There's so many people with criminal records that um, just uh, keeping them out of employment makes things worse and it like ruins culture. So, so is it, so when you're banning the box, the box is a little box that you check if you have a criminal record, right? And it right. bans you from asking the question or it bans you from using that information to throw it out without looking at anything else? Without looking at anything else. So, it's, so you can I, still ask the question. We're not really banning the box. Um, you know, I, I think it depends on the state. Um, but I think the the push here is not to not use background or, you know, at all. Um, 
and sometimes, of course, in like security guard situations or when you're talking about children or, you know, there's certain certainly places where you do actually want to know if there's a criminal record. So it's not it's not saying you can't find that out ever, when, especially when it's relevant. The point is that you shouldn't use it as a first filter. You should make sure that you actually see whether someone's qualified for a job. How many data scientists have criminal records, Kathy? Probably not very many. And I'll say another thing, like probably not very many people who like are in power have criminal records. So this is an issue that's, you know, it, it, I'm glad it's getting coverage because it's something that, you know, affects poor people mostly, um, especially once they have the criminal record. There's, mm. They stay poor because they can't get a job. So I, I, I think it's a good idea. And uh, by the way, 100 cities that aren't in those 19 states that where it's illegal, 100 cities have passed local laws saying you should ban the box, which is nice. All right. Nando, what's your number? 258.9 million. Okay. That's big. Yeah, it's big. It's bigger than 70. Uh, it, it, it's related to the, to the last topic we talked about. That's the number of opiate painkiller dis- uh, prescriptions given out in the United States in 2012, which is the last year that the CDC has data. Wow. Which is 83 million for every 100 persons. It's almost one per person. Wow. So we are creating a nation of opiate addicts, not unlike China during the opium war time. That's amazing. Yeah. Good times. Um, Chill times. I, I have, I think, one of the smallest numbers that we've had on this show. Mm. Or lowest rather than smallest. is minus 1.4 billion. Mm. Mm. Uh, which is the... That sounds bad. <laughs> which is the inventory of corporate bonds held by the 22 primary dealers um, in the Federal Reserve System. There are 22 big banks, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all of those banks who deal in treasuries. And those banks are basically the big bond dealing broker dealers. They trade in corporate debt. And back in May, between them, they had an inventory of about $13 billion worth of corporate bonds. Um, Go back a few years, it was much higher than that. And what they would do is they would sit on this inventory of corporate bonds and they would trade it in and out. If you wanted to buy bonds, they would sell them to you. If you wanted to sell them bonds, they would buy them from, from you and they would make money trading bonds. Right now, their inventory of corporate bonds is negative. It's mm. minus $1.4 billion. They have a negative quantity of bonds, which is kind of... So the banks are so short companies. They're, they're, they're basically short corporate debt, which is... That, like, the banks should be out there lending or maybe we'll just like short debt. It's kind of amazing. So does that... There's been a lot of talk about, you know, trouble in the corporate debt markets. You know, people like there have been a few things bubbling around the blogs being like, is this the next big bust? Is this would this be an indicator that the banks, the, the broker dealers think that corporate debt markets are the next big bust or? So this is an indicator as, as Matt Levine every single day, literally five days a week. He has a little section of his newsletter saying people are worried about bond market liquidity and the banks are the intermediaries in the corporate bond market. And what this shows is that the banks are less able than ever pretty much to perform that intermediary job. And people are going to have to find non-bank ways of trading their bonds. So if something does go wrong, a lot of people are going to freak out because it's not a very liquid market. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) This is for another day. (laughs) People are worried about bond market liquidity. We'll leave it at that for the time being. Jordan, what is your number? (laughs) All right. Um... My number is a little more lighthearted. Mine is $8.5 million, mm. which is the appraised <laughs> value of the world's most expensive dollhouse. What? It's just going to be on display at the Time Warner Center in New York through early December. Um, 
you know, I, I could joke that this is what, you know, $8.5 million will get you in residential real estate in the city, but uh, but I won't make that joke because it's too obvious. Wow. No, I, I, but um, so what's the deal with this dollhouse? So apparently it was built around, this is from, I believe this is, I'm quoting from Bloomberg here, or it might be the New York Times, one or the other. It was built around 1980 by the miniaturist Elaine Deal, who called it the Astolat Castle. Arthurian legend and Tennyson's poetry tell of an aristocratic young woman named Elaine from the city of Astolat who dies of heartbreak after Sir Lancelot rejects her. Apparently, it's got like 10,000 miniature pieces of like furniture and various items, including little books that you can open and read with a magnifying glass, one of which is like the one of the world's smallest Bibles. But yeah, so if you want to, you know, buy a dollhouse for $8.5 million, there's one for you. You know, I'm a craft person, and that makes no sense to me. Well, you know, I, I, if you, <laughs> You know, I guess if you just think about it as like another art object that rich people will throw their money at, like what what's really di- the difference between this and a Warhol in the end? <laughs> uh, Nanda, you want to answer that question? Oh, well, the dollhouse, you can play with it. <laughs> That's true. There's more utility. Your kid can You can't fun. really play with a Warhol. I, I mean, you could. You don't want to get that thing smudged. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is it for us this week. Thank you all for listening to the special Great Debate episode of Slate Money. Email us on slatemoney at slate.com and tell us that Jordan and Felix won. No, 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 that's a total lie. Especially if you you have student debt, you're on our team. Come on. Uh, Okay. Or alternatively say that Nando and Kathy won the debate. But, I mean, I can't imagine anyone actually believing that. Wow. Anyway. Just Um, a little bias there. Thank thank you for this week's Flucker expert. Yeah. um, His big break. Dynastine, who... Big podcast break. Who, um, you know, we could not produce, literally could not produce this podcast without him. But we also rely on him for all kinds of information about illegal substances. Um, thank you to Andy Bowers, who is the executive producer. And go check out all of the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Join us next week where I'm pretty sure we're going to have an amazingly special guest from Washington, D.C., which is not nearly as fabulous as Miami. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.